there is a section of the population that gets wish fulfillment from apocalyptic films. People who feel that somehow society and civilization are repressing them. That if society would only collapse, then they could finally rise from the ashes and be the alpha male that they know that they have in them. Which is a fun fantasy, because in the reality, most of them would be giving hand jobs for raw turnips within 48 hours. I'm Eli Roth, and this is my Shudder original series, History of Horror Uncut. Each episode is a candid conversation with a master of the genre, drawn from raw and unfiltered interviews conducted for my AMC TV series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. These are deep dives into the dark power and wicked fun of frightening movies, the craft that goes into making them, and the ways that horror reflects the anxieties of our times. They're also probing, insightful, and often funny conversations that open up doors into the minds of horror's star creators. The terror begins right after this. Max Brooks is the son of show business legends Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft, but he's followed a different path, writing reality-based horror fiction. His bestsellers, The Zombie Survival Guide, World War Z, and Devolution are carefully thought-out explorations of what happens when social structures fall apart. Max sat down with History of Horror showrunner Kurt Sienga to discuss zombies, apocalypse movies, and pandemics real and imagined. I wrote World War Z to answer my own questions. And the big question I had is, what would a zombie plague look like across the planet? Zombie plagues are big, but most zombie stories are small. Most zombie stories focus on small groups or individuals. And that's fine, that's great. Uh, but as a consumer of zombie stories, I had a lot of questions. What were governments doing? different governments in different countries? How were different cultures dealing with this? How was one part of the planet affecting another part? Uh, it's like a world war. And I wanted to know about this world war. And so I sat down to try and answer my own questions. And I got very lucky because I had a template, which was Studs Terkel's The Good War. And through a true oral history of World War II, I was able to see the best way of telling my zombie story. I thought, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be Studs Terkel of zombies. I'm going to interview survivors of the global zombie plague and stitch their stories together in the big picture. When you were putting it together, did you make certain realizations about you know, what society would need to do or how? Researching World War Z taught me a lot about how real disasters happen. 
because I wanted my story to be realistic as possible. As someone who grew up with dyslexia and really didn't get along well in school, I had to look for an education through fiction. And my hero was Tom Clancy. And I loved his books because I would walk away from them not just feeling entertained, but also educated. And that's the kind of writer I wanted to be. So everything I write, I spend years researching. And that's what I did with World War Z. I had to study how not just real pandemics, but how real militaries operate, how the intelligence networks operate in public health, economics. What would happen if the global supply chain was suddenly severed and we went back to pre-1492 economics? Through studying that, I got a sense of how our planet really does work and also how interdependent we are with one another. How has the book functioned as a teaching tool? I did not expect the response that it got. I wrote it for me. Whenever I write anything, I write it for me. And I hoped people would like it, but I certainly can't sit down to write something for other people because I don't know how to do that. I always write knowing at least something will have one fan. So I was very surprised when initially I got a call from the United States Naval War College asking me to come speak. I said, do you have the right guy? I think it's still on YouTube, my first talk there, where I'm saying, are you sure it's not a paperwork shuffle problem? There isn't Lieutenant Commander Max Brooks wandering around Comic-Con saying, I'm not supposed to be here. But I was very lucky. Admiral James Weiskup told me that my book, Once the Zombies Were Taken Out, was an effective manual for a global crisis. Who knew? But from that, I started getting speaking engagements at other military think tanks and strategic studies groups. And then I was invited by uh, an Iraq war veteran, Captain John Spencer, to become a senior non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point, in which I teach creativity, which is something that we sorely need now. Basically, because our enemies are out-creating us, out-thinking us, out-maneuvering us every step of the way. And that actually goes back to Desert Storm. Uh, 1991, we fought a huge war basically to deter the world from aggression. We thought that if we fought a massive stand-up World War II-style battle and utterly pulverized an enemy on 24-hour news, we would be teaching our enemies and frenemies potential threats, don't mess with us. Because if you meet us on the battlefield, we'll annihilate you. What we didn't understand was the lesson we were teaching them was don't meet us on the battlefield, find other ways. And that's what they've been doing. It's called asymmetric warfare. And so they've been learning cyber, they've been learning information, they've been learning biological warfare, they've been learning information warfare, economics, all ways to pole vault over our big green machine into the homeland. And so our military has to be a much more nimble intellectual machine than it ever has been before because the old Prussian way of lining up chess pieces on a battlefield are not going to work. The information warfare seems to have been a particular hit. It worked. I have, a, I have a friend who has worked in the information warfare sphere for 20 years. What he told me was in the 1960s and 70s, the KGB tried very hard to tear us apart. But the problem is they went through the left. And America's left, by tradition, is very disorganized, very fractured, and deeply, deeply incompetent. So it didn't matter how many KGB plants were trying to disseminate information in the anti-war movement or the Panthers or whomever, it didn't work. However, now the right 
is much more uniform and gets its news from much fewer sources. So all you need to do is plant certain stories in the very few information spheres that the right goes to. And now it's working and we've seen it. We saw this with storming the Capitol. So information warfare is really the ultimate chess piece of the Russians. And they've been able to do to us what their Soviet predecessors couldn't even have dreamed. They've torn us apart. You know, if I have one regret about the World War Z movie, it's never saying thank you to Brad Pitt because it doesn't matter how the movie came out. What matters is because of that movie, a whole lot of people read my book who would have otherwise never heard of it. And that's why writers, that's why authors sell the movie rights, not for the movie, but to elevate the book, to get eyes on the book. And if I ever forgot about that, over the course of the production process, Stephen King reminded me of it. There was a time when I was struggling and my wife, God bless her, said, you need to speak to a friend. That friend was Frank Darabont, who created a little show called The Walking Dead. Uh, I wrote to Frank, who then wrote me back, who said, don't ever think for a second that the movie ruined your book because movies cannot ruin books. The only way your book can be ruined if somehow a publisher would take every copy off the shelves and rewrite it and republish it. And that didn't happen. He said, take it from a screenwriter who's had plenty of scripts reworked. You will always have your book, no matter what. And then he passed on my email to his friend Stephen King, who reminded me that all authors sell movie rights in order to bring attention to their book. So if I have a problem with the World War Z movie, it's my problem and mine alone. Well, Stephen King ought to know. I think I got very lucky because the movie strayed so far from the book. I was very worried that I might go through what Stephen King went through on The Shining because it's almost his book, but it's not. And it's not enough of his book. And he was fired off his own book. He was hired to write the movie. And then Kubrick fired him because, you know, Stephen King doesn't know how to write. And then he had to go watch this and the movie became a classic. I thought I was gonna watch my characters be mutilated and my story be eviscerated. None of it was there, none of it, just the title. So you close your eyes during the title and then you get to watch a really cool 28 Days Later-esque movie on steroids. I think as a, as a crazy zombie film, I think it works. Now I'm partial to slow zombies. And I was honest with Brad Pitt because God bless him, he was a, he was a stand-up gentleman. And he didn't have to be. You know, the whole world wanted him to fail. Everybody wanted World War Z to be Brad Pitt's water world. And I remember that production process. He didn't have a friend in the world when that thing was going through reshoots. And he showed them. The movie was a massive hit. He could have given the finger to everyone, including me. But he came up to me at the dinner right after the screening and he said to me, did you cringe? And I thought, 
to be such a cool guy, to be that honest, I at least owe him honesty back. And I said to him, you know what? If I were anybody but the guy who wrote the book, I'd probably love that movie. And he was okay with that. It's a big, crazy movie. So, I mean, it's got some, like, amazing... The, one, the thing to its credit, you could say, is it has imagery that you could never have pulled off without just all the resources in the world. I think, and I could be wrong, I think that future zombie historians will see that movie as a turning point for zombies in pop culture. Because up until that point, it was still pretty fringy. This is before Walking Dead was ever even greenlit. This is before anything. For the biggest movie star in the world to have his pick of anything and to have his reputation riding, to pick a zombie book and to say, that's going to be my epic movie. That's where I'm going to put all my eggs. That's where I'm going to stake my reputation. I'm going to make a zombie movie. For him to do that, I think gave the popular culturists of the world permission to embrace it. Because I can tell you, when my first book, Zombie Survival Guide, came out, nobody was biting. It was very fringy. I was very fringy. Uh, they tried to turn it into a comedy book, which almost ruined my career. I had to fight for the honesty of it, but that honesty had a pretty small audience. And I think Brad Pitt took a huge step in allowing people to love zombies. Now they're everywhere. And I'll tell you one more thing about the World War Z movie. The special effects are now copied in every zombie movie because I was just watching Train to Busan and the zombies coming together in a stream and a river of humans. That's straight out of World War Z. Train to Busan is a great zombie film. It's so tight. You've got the, the cramped quarters of the train, but you've also got a wonderful contradiction of pacing because once the movie starts going, it's light speed, it's fast, it's roller coaster, uh, just like an American zombie movie would be, a modern American zombie movie. But what Train to Busan does, which we wouldn't have the guts to do anymore, is take our time in the beginning. In the beginning of Act One, we get to know all the characters. We get to know their personal problems, their interpersonal relationships. Train to Busan gives us a chance to care for these people. So when they die, we actually feel something, as opposed to big modern American movies where you basically get about 30 seconds to get to know people before it's all over. The theme of Train to Busan is actually very universal because it's all about people working together. And we were always told in the West that we're out for ourselves, but in the East, everybody works together. And Train to Busan blows that out of the water because we see people who are becoming real monsters. Uh, just like an American or European zombie film, they're turning on each other, they're throwing each other to the wolves or the zombies. Our main character has to go through a soul journey of discovering that maybe living life just for himself is no life lived. And there's also the theme of corruption as well at the you know higher levels of business and uh, not caring about the needs of the many. In a way, Train to Busan is a very universal film because it's, it's themes that we in the West could completely identify with. You've got the uh, corrupt corporations. You've got the douchebag executive who's willing to sacrifice people. It's every archetype that you would find in an American movie. And while Train to Busan is a great 
plague movie. There's an even better one called Flu. And that is a story of a super flu coming into South Korea and basically exploding into a, a violent, violent pandemic. And what it does that a lot of movies won't even touch is it deals with international treaties. Because at the end, the crisis is, are the Americans going to help their Korean friends and allies or is America in it for itself? Are we a friend, are we an enemy? So as an American, I walked away from that movie wondering if my country is doing everything it should be doing to create closer ties with our Korean allies. What is the plot of Flu, which I have not seen and must now see? The plot of Flu is, is a standard epidemic story that a disease comes into South Korea slowly at first, one, two, three, then multiplied exponentially. And then before you know it, there's a giant burn pit in the middle of a city. And it's the kind of burn pit that you want to see in The Last Man on Earth, but they didn't have the budget for. In this movie, you actually see it. You see a massive hole in the ground where covered soldiers with flamethrowers are walking among the corpses, trying to burn them all. And it's, it's an epic nightmare of what is a worst case disaster scenario. And so far, I don't think many movies have even come close to it. Contagion did not show you that kind of a scale. Outbreak did not show that kind of a scale. Really, no one has. To my knowledge, only flu shows the sheer scope of how germs can be a slate wiper. There was something interesting about Train to Busan, which I wonder about, and I could be reading way too much into this. In the early days of the Korean War, when Kim Il-sung's crack troops were just kicking the crap out of both American and ROC forces, we had to withdraw to Busan. It was called the Pusan Perimeter. And that was literally, if you look at a map of the early Korean War, the whole country was communist except for this one little perimeter around Pusan. So maybe I'm reading too much into this, or maybe the writers of Train to Busan thought, you know what? This is the kind of story my grandfather told me, but I'm going to zombify it. That's interesting. You probably are on to something with that. So. I wonder. I wonder. Maybe if I met the writers of Train to Busan, they'd be like, no, that's just where the train goes. There's a lot of these historical echoes, I think, that get watered down and filtered down and turn into something else. I would argue, I know you didn't want to talk about mad scientists, but I do have my favorite pet argument is that Dr. Frankenstein, as played by Peter Cushing in the Hammer films, yes. is inspired by Joseph Mengele and the Nazi doctors. Was not aware of that one. I don't think anybody said that. It's just when watching the films, I'm thinking, it's made by British guys 10 years after World now, War II, yeah. around the time that all the stuff is coming out. Well, recently I showed my son... Gojira, the original Godzilla movie, 1954. And what was so crazy about it was it was not a kid's movie. This was a hardcore disaster film. These are people screaming, running for their lives, blood. There's a woman holding her children as the city burns, saying, we're about, basically, we're about to die. We're going to see daddy soon. There is literally a woman on the tram as they're reading headlines about Godzilla. And she says, God, I barely escaped Nagasaki. Now I got to deal with this. And what's crazy is watching that, you see that all the extras 
who are, you know, racing to get on trucks and soldiers saying, please evacuate, evacuate. Everybody in that shot has lived through the bombings of Japanese cities. Because we didn't just nuke Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we firebombed every other city. So every Japanese citizen, this was only, what, nine years after 1945, everyone there has actually had real life experience with this kind of disaster. So maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it seems like this is a way to exercise the demons of the war and to also come to grips with the new Cold War. Because what we in the West don't seem to understand was it's not just that Japan had World War II and was utterly devastated. 1950, five years after World War II, the Korean War explodes right next door. And there was a distinct fear that that was going to go nuclear and that was going to be just the first round of World War III. That's what everybody thought. That's what MacArthur tried to do. So the Japanese really did live on the edge of a knife. And the idea that eventually devastation would show up at their shores is, I think, personified in Gojira. And at the exact same time, the exact same year, on the other side of the Pacific, we're making the movie Them. Giant ants, once again, from atomic energy. This idea that even though we haven't been nuked, we haven't been the victim of it, what hath we unleashed? The fact that even Robert Oppenheimer even said it, what have we done? Oh, really, Bobby? You didn't think about that when you're actually making the bomb? Then you set it off, oh, what have we done? Would have been nice you'd have thought about that before you'd made the bomb. But this notion that, as Dr. Medford says, when man entered the atomic age, he opened the door into a new world. What we'll eventually find in that new world, no one can predict. And so the giant monster movies started as a way of humans realizing that they had created something bigger than them. Infections in the infection film genre, uh, which has suddenly become more relevant than ever. For instance, uh, Contagion. Contagion is a brilliant movie because it's medically accurate. It's the first time most of us have heard of terms like fomites and social distancing. It does really nail how quickly a disease can spread through the modern world with air travel, with rapidly urbanizing populations, with our lack of stockpiling, our lack of good public health. The only element of contagion that history has proved spectacularly wrong is China. In contagion, the virus begins in China and the Chinese are very cooperative. Technically, it's Hong Kong. And so the Chinese are, are open, they're honest, they're willing to cooperate. So it really is a, a global effort. It's all of us against the virus. Now, to give Soderbergh the benefit of the doubt, it could very well be because post the first SARS, the Chinese had a message to the world that they weren't gonna hide it anymore. Because the first time SARS exploded out of China, they absolutely lied. They covered it up. They wouldn't let the World Health Organization in. They did their impression of Eddie Murphy and Raw, saying it wasn't me. And suddenly SARS started popping up all around the planet. 
So they cried mea culpa. They promised they would never do it again, that new China would be open, honest, and ready to cooperate with the world. We are now all sitting here in terror with half a million Americans dead because that did not happen. We know now that while we blame our own governments, rightfully so, for cocking up this pandemic, this would not have been a pandemic if the Chinese Communist Party had been open and honest and not threatened Dr. Li and other Chinese doctors and forced them to hide the truth. Contagion represents the world that the Chinese promised they would contribute to. This current pandemic has proved that it was all a lie. The Chinese Communist Party is not open about its public health. To this day, we don't know the true source of COVID-19, and we probably never will. Well, it's not uncommon to never be able to find out the true source of a pandemic viral spread. There's still arguments about where Ebola comes from, for instance, in Trent. No, it's, tr it's true. Uh, the World Health Organization went through Katoom Cave in Kenya, and they crawled through molecule by molecule, and they could not find the source. What didn't happen is that the Kenyan government did not try to suppress the source. What we have seen in Contagion is an idealized version of what we hoped a pandemic would be, ironically. COVID-19 has proven that the foundation of public health is democracy. Democracy and a free and open society and a free and open press is not a luxury. It is necessary, it is vital to keeping us all healthy and alive. Well, so basically the film's biggest flaw is, even though it seems like a pessimistic film, it was overly optimistic about politics. Contagion was made at a very special time. It was made during the Obama administration where uh, we had a government that was interested in governing. It was made at a time where the Chinese had promised that if an outbreak ever happened in their country again, they would be open and honest and not threaten doctors like they did the first time. So if contagion were made today, post-COVID-19, post-China's suppression of Dr. Li and trying to scrub social media and crushing Hong Kong under their boot, things might have turned out very differently. If contagion were made today, post-Donald Trump, Soderbergh's version of how government responds to a pandemic might also be very, 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 very different. Where's Outbreak stand now in the infection movie Pantheon? It's very much a product of, let's see, 1995 that was. Outbreak is a classic bioweapons film of the 1990s because it combined the very real current events of Ebola with the very real current events of the end of the Cold War, because it took the end of the Cold War for the United States to start dismantling its biological weapons programs. The 1990s was a very important time for the United States military because it was struggling to find a role in the world and had built up, in addition to our nuclear arsenal, a massive biological arsenal. And that was being taken down. It touches a little bit on the illegal animal trade which is very serious, which is one of the main vectors for viruses in two countries, illegal pets. That is something that the Blue Ribbon Biodefense Panel has been working on very hard. It is something that all governments are trying to clamp down on. The illegal pet trade is not just about cruelty to animals. It's not about just environmental degradation. 
it is also about circumventing quarantine rules and taking suspicious animals into countries. The monkey specifically was based on a real event, which was perfectly legal, which was Marburg's disease. Monkeys that came to Marburg, Germany, were infected with what we're not sure was... Violent hemorrhagic fever, right? It so, was some yeah. sort of hemorrhagic fever, and I think to this day we're not 100% sure whether it was airborne or not. We knew that monkeys across the room were infected, and we knew that people could become infected. We're still not sure whether it was droplets or whether it was airborne, but you could see how that true story formed the kernel of outbreak. 12 monkeys, as far as it being an infection film and a wacky, bizarre science fiction film? It's not inaccurate to say that pretty much everything Terry Gilliam makes is genius. And 12 Monkeys was a brilliant movie. It combined time travel with pandemics. And at the very end, it did actually show bioterrorism, which you almost never see. There's been very, very few bioterror films for the very reason that it's not dramatic. It's not something that you really could be excited about. It's not a terrorist setting off a nuke, like uh, Tom Clancy's The Sum of All Fears. It is a silent, invisible killer. And yet they showed it at the very end about how quickly a virus could spread all around the planet. Also, how a virus could mutate, which is exactly what we're living in right now. The idea that the virus in the beginning of 12 Monkeys mutates and mutates faster than we can counter is exactly what we're living in right now. Viruses that are based on RNA mutate very quickly. That's the SARS virus, and that was the virus in 12 Monkeys. I'm always interested in hearing from people who don't believe in evolution, how they deal with getting the flu or COVID. You, you know, the real danger we're facing right now in bioterror is genetic manipulation. Because time was you had to bring a virus into a country or out of a laboratory. But now what you're able to do is simply tweak the genes of the common cold of your dog's kennel cough to make a superbug. And even if you personally as a bioterrorist don't know how to do it, there might be someone in another country or a non-state actor who might be willing to help you do that. And at this point, we don't have the kind of legal safeguards to prevent that. And it doesn't even have to be on the dark web. Sleep well, everybody. Are you familiar with Pontypool? Yes, Pontypool, kiss is kill. It's Canadian, isn't it? I think one of, one of the, the secrets that Canadians try to hide is that they've got a dark side. They try to be all polite and they're sorry about things, but wow, when they go horror, they go dark. They created David Cronenberg. And, and as of yet, they've still yet to apologize for all the nightmares that he's caused. Uh, he created the movie Shivers which basically was a sexual virus. And that was a 
plague film of its time because that was the sexual revolution. That was when baby boomers were suddenly waking up to the idea that you could boink someone that you weren't married to. And that was a very big deal to that generation. So you had to, you had to have a plague that could make you do something as crazy as have sex out of wedlock. But the Canadians also gave us in 1979 a really dark epidemic movie called Plague. I believe it was uh, Bacteria. And it was incredibly accurate because it showed rather than just spoke about how a virus can spread. We actually see a woman who doesn't even know that she's a super spreader innocently touching money, handing it to someone, that person touches it, they touch their face, and it spreads on and on and on. It shows uh, different vectors through animals and through breath. And it is terrifying because it shows how society can quickly collapse. You mentioned Cronenberg, so we also uh, have to talk about Rabid. Oh, yeah. I'm not 100% sure Rabid wasn't a comedy. The idea that Marilyn Chambers has a a fang that comes out under her arm and then sucks the blood and then she becomes sort of the typhoid Mary of this rabid disease. That was supposed to be funny. I laughed. Cronenberg is obviously a genius. We know this. Anybody who makes movies like The Fly and Dead Ringers is way above my league. But in Rabid, what was scary about it was to see how quickly infections spread. This is why diseases are so scary because they are self-replicating. That's why germ weapons are the scariest weapons ever. Even if you set off a nuke on a city, if you live outside the city, you're gonna be okay. But imagine setting off a nuke that then makes more nukes. That's what's so terrifying about germs. Marilyn Chambers didn't even know that she was Typhoid Mary until it was too late, until this rabies had gotten out of control and the army had had to move in and shut down the city. That's what's so scary about being a spreader. You don't even know you're a spreader until you've already spread. That's what made, uh, what made this plague so terrifying was the two-week asymptomatic window where somebody could theoretically be infected and fly all around the world and spread it like David Morse at the end of 12 Monkeys. A year ago or so when this broke out, were you one of the people who revisited or visited all the uh, infection movies they could find? When the virus first broke out in China, I started watching all those movies again. When the virus came here, I stopped because I didn't have to watch movies anymore. Right now, I could just watch the news. During the period when you were watching them, what did you get out of it? What were you looking for? For me, it was always interesting to see how close pandemic movies come to reality. Because at least personally, the more realistic it is, the scarier it is. If it's based on something real, then I'm terrified because I can't walk away from it. If it's pure fantasy, then I can just turn off the TV and go back into my wonderful world and know that that will never happen. But if it's based in actual science, if it's based on how real viruses are transmitted, then that's a lot of material for nightmares. And what of these have you seen that feels the most accurate? I mean, is Contagion the most accurate or are there others? Contagion is probably the most accurate when it comes to science, social unrest, and public health. But 
it's not when it comes to international relations because it was based on a China that we hoped would happen. We know now that China suppressed the truth, let the virus go around the world, and ironically cried racism. And that is ironic because the great hero of COVID-19 is the other China, which is Taiwan. Taiwan kicked communist China in the nuts because it's democratic, it's got a free and open press, it's got all the messiness that the Communist Chinese Party says is inefficient and disorderly. And yet this messy, disorderly system called democracy saved Taiwan. So if we had a problem here, then the problem isn't democracy. The problem is our ability to handle democracy because Taiwan recently celebrated 100 days with zero infections in a free, open, and democratic society. Everybody wants to get their movies either made in China or released in China, or they want production money from China. And China now has a very powerful and scary alternative model to the West, which is capitalism without democracy. You can have all the bling, you can have the cars, the nice home. Uh, you just don't get to speak your mind or think dangerous thoughts. And so our own greed has fueled that and our own greed will continue to fuel that. Chances are there probably won't even be a fictional horror film which will have a plague starting in China. And I say this as someone whose book, World War Z, was banned in China. The whole reason that my fictitious zombie plague started in China was not because of the massive population or the rapidly urbanizing population or even the transport network. Those were all secondary to the problem that I needed a government that would suppress the truth. If I had put my fictional zombie plague in India or Mexico or Indonesia, some intrepid reporter would have cracked the story and that would have been the end of that. But I needed a government that was willing to sit on a disease long enough for it to get out of control. And I had the model of SARS, which had just happened. Now, when my book came out, when Brad Pitt was gonna make the movie, and suddenly the whole world wanted the publishing rights in different languages, uh, a publishing house in the People's Republic of China asked me very politely if I would change the name of China to something else. And when I politely said no, they said, well, could we then take those chapters in China out and put them online in a server outside the PRC? I said, I'm very sorry. I completely understand where you're coming from, but I can't censor my book because my book is critical of censorship. In a slightly different tack, the movie Virus Virus is a crazy movie. You've got this, this signal from space, this living signal that fuses humans and machines, which is truly terrifying. It's actually, it's a little bit like uh, the movie, I believe it was called Moontrap with Walter Koenig and Bruce Campbell, where you had sort of these, these brains that would then assemble bodies out of whatever parts they could. In Virus, the terrifying part, not to be a spoiler, is at the end when you see Donald Sutherland. And yeah, he's on top of like a Russian guy's body. Somebody's yeah, well, it's a Russian ship. ship. Yeah, Russian it's, ship. it's a Russian ship that, that channels the signal down from space. Crew is all killed. 
And I believe the premise, I haven't seen the movie, God, since it came out. I believe the idea is Donald Sutherland is a tugboat captain. They're in a storm. He's lost all his cargo. He's, he's leveraged everything. I think he even says the word, I've leveraged everything I've got on this. He's destitute. They come across this abandoned ship. And by the law of salvage, if you come across a ship in international waters, there's nobody alive, you own it. But then they realize that the ship is infected with this computer virus. It's worth seeing also for the end, which is one of the most ridiculous endings I've ever seen in a movie. You got to give horror films of the 90s a break because the 90s were post-war. Uh, anytime a country goes through a post-war phase, be it World War One, World War Two, or Cold War, uh, art tends to get a little silly. In the 1920s, we had the Charleston and the Flappers and all those silly dances because people were just so happy the war was over. In the 50s... You know, we had the bebop music and the hula hoops. And post-Cold War, there really was this sense of, of everything's happy and wonderful. Computers are now talking to each other where you can see nakedness on it. And sort of the pinnacle of American post-Cold War cinema, the proof that the West has, has and should have triumphed over communism was American pie. And from that pinnacle, everything else trickled down. Another hot take. Yeah, take that, Ivan. I know you spent some time with the government, and this, of course, is before your time that way. It's more my dad's time, the Andromeda Strain. The Andromeda Strain was, like most pandemic movies, a film of its time. Because there really was a fear at the, the dawn of the space age that we might bring back something from space. There's a reason that when our astronauts came back from the moon, they spent some serious time in quarantine. They didn't get to just land on the aircraft carrier, sail home, and then go on a parade. There was a terror. And that terror was based in reality, especially in the United States. Because this continent has seen the worst genocidal nightmare uh, that this planet has ever faced. And as much as Europeans are rightfully to blame for it, a lot of the deaths came from disease. This continent of ours, this hemisphere of ours, has a lot of ghosts because the indigenous peoples did not have the kind of protections that Europeans, Africans, and Asians had from interactions with each other. The people of the Americas literally were on another planet. So when the first Spaniard coughed, everything came crumbling down. And there was a fear that Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins and Neil Armstrong were going to bring something back, God forbid, from the moon. So you could see how the Andromeda strain played on that, that we sent a satellite up, it came back down, and it brought something with it. We have found little building block materials of life and asteroids and things that have fallen to Earth, too, which does suggest that there's the material needed for organic life is out there. Andromeda strain made perfect sense because if you think that so many indigenous Americans were wiped out by diseases that they didn't have an immunity to on the very same planet. What chance do we have from something from another planet? Before I get to apocalyptic films, I want to ask you about one mad scientist film. 
A film called Young Frankenstein. Heard of it. Uh, heard it's pretty good. I can tell you, Young Frankenstein, uh, my memories of it were being on the set as a very little boy and being blown away that there was a machine that could make spider webs. That was pretty cool. I don't remember anything else. I think I was three years old. Have you revisited it recently or anytime lately? I remember Young Frankenstein is the movie that my dad said taught him how to direct, where he really learned how to use the camera uh, as its own tool and learned how to tell a story with pictures. Young Frankenstein's a great story. Not only is it funny, but like all my dad's films, it's got heart and it's a great story, great characters. I think too many people today might be a little too sensitive, some of the humor, but that's their problem. Apocalyptic horror. And first, a more general question. First, what do people get out of movies about the apocalypse? I think different people get something different from horror films. There is a section of the population that gets wish fulfillment from apocalyptic films. People who feel that somehow society and civilization are repressing them. That if society would only collapse, then they could finally rise from the ashes and be the alpha male that they know that they have in them, which is a fun fantasy because in the reality, most of them would be giving hand jobs for raw turnips within 48 hours. The truth is, in a real apocalyptic setting, most people would be dead and it wouldn't matter how macho or how well armed you are. The truth is most of us are alive because of a first world safety net of vaccines and public health and hospitals and firefighters and cops that uh, people who came before us worked really, really hard and suffered and sacrificed to build for us. And they did such a good job of it that we don't know how any of this works anymore and we take it for granted. We're a little bit like the barbarians who sacked Rome and didn't understand how the aqueduct worked. That's kind of us. And so, too many of us now see civilization as an impediment rather than a safeguard. Because the truth is, if all of that went away, most of us would be dead in a year. And if anybody wonders about that, just look up the average life expectancy of the average Somali warlord. Because there are places around this planet, we call them failed states, that are living the apocalyptic dream. So anybody who thinks that they're going to be Mad Max, take a few weeks in Somalia or maybe in that little gray zone between Russia and Ukraine. See, see how that works out for you and see if it's still as exciting and cool as you think it would be if society imploded. I have the same feeling. Everybody thinks that they're going to be this badass with the shotgun. At best, you'll be uh, Viggo Mortensen and son in the road. Everybody thinks that they're, they're going to be the alpha. Everyone thinks that they are going to be the Roman centurion that becomes King Arthur when the empire falls. But the truth is, in addition to creating science, technology, and infrastructure that keeps us alive, what really does keep us all safe is each other. Because what we have created is a society of specialization. That means individuals doing one job really well and not having to worry about doing anything else so they could focus on their job. And that goes back to the Stone Age when hunter-gatherers discovered that certain skills should be left to certain people, but if you combined all those skills in a community, the entire community rose. So I don't care how good you are with an AR-15, 
I don't care how well you can ride a motorcycle. I don't care you are in Krav Maga. When you get ball cancer, you better have an oncologist on standby. And if you don't, good luck with that Krav Maga. The trap of any apocalyptic story is romanticizing bad choices. But by the same token, you have to make bad choices or else you don't have a story. If you didn't have a bad story, the apocalypse wouldn't happen because everybody would be doing their job. George R. R. Martin once said to me, my characters always make bad choices. Therefore, he writes really good stories because it's exciting. But if everybody did the right thing, you wouldn't have much of a story. And the best example of that in cinematic history, bar none, is in Dawn of the Dead, in the director's cut. I don't know why they cut this scene out, but when you have Flyboy and they're all in the mall and they're watching TV, which to me as, as a kid was the scariest moment, not the action part, not the zombies part. To me, the absolute most terrifying moments in Dawn of the Dead was watching the grownups cock it up was watching TV and watching the people that I, as a child, looked to to keep me alive. The experts, the scientists, those in government, those in the military, and watching them all fight with each other, watching them all tear each other down and disbelieve each other was absolutely terrifying. And Flyboy says that. Flyboy says, this is so solvable. If people would just organize, we could solve this. And we are unfortunately living in a time where grown-ups are few and far between. And it looks like Romero's vision of an infantilized society has come upon us. We haven't talked about Richard Matheson's The Last Man on Earth, and or Richard Matheson's I Am Legend. Omega which Man, be, I Am Legend. Begets. I Am Legend is one of the best apocalyptic stories ever written. Bar none. It inspired George Romero to do the entire zombie genre. It's been made into three separate movies, two of which are pretty good. Vincent Price as The Last Man on Earth, that's pretty brilliant, and it's pretty dark for a movie made that early, where you see how the plague goes around the world. You see people starting to die. Some of those scenes are just absolutely heartbreaking. When his daughter dies, he's trying to get her out of the pit, and he says, wait, my, my daughter's in there. And the soldier says, mister, there's a lot of daughters in there, including my own. Whoa. And the remake with Will Smith had a lot of guts that you don't really see in movies now. Because nowadays, most movies are either in two categories. Teeny tiny little art films of Francis McDormand getting upset at something, brilliantly, and well acted, by the way, but teeny tiny movie with Francis McDormand, or giant tentpole franchise, uh, which has about seven lines of dialogue and a billion dollars of special effects, and not one bad feeling, because you don't want anybody to feel bad, because then they won't come back for the next one. Whereas I Am Legend had some real darkness. The fact that they had the courage to kill off his family, the fact that they had the courage to have the ending that it had, this is the Fresh Prince we're talking about. This is a guy who has, for the most part, staked his movie career on feel-good movies. So for him to go the distance, I thought took an incredible spine. And then there's the Omega Man, which is... And then there's the Omega Man, which we're not going to discuss. 
which we're going to put the, we're, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take the Omega Man, we're going to put it in a box along with the Star Wars Holiday Special. And you know the one I'm talking about? I know exactly. The Chewie one has to go home to Mala and Itchy and Lumpy. Mm-hmm. Yes, we're going to take that along with Omega Man and put those in a box and we're going to bury that box and not tell anyone where they are. Sorry, like green, though. No, that's a... Yeah, you know, the irony about Charlton Heston is he was a conservative Republican. Back in the days when that was not a popular thing. I mean, he really was the torchbearer of sort of old-school American conservatism. And yet he made the most lefty, dark, liberal movies you ever could. I mean... My joke is that when he's on when he's on the beach in Planet of the Apes and he's screaming, you maniacs, what he's thinking is, you didn't win. He made Soylent Green, which was about environmental degradation, the idea that we're making too many people and we're not making any more land. And eventually, that simple math is going to come home to roost. Uh, that is a terrifying movie. And what great casting to put Edward G. Robinson in that, too. Uh, the idea that just the remains of the dead are just being chopped up and... When he says at the end, eventually they're going to start breeding us like cattle. Uh, It's a pretty bleak view, but a lot of 70s movies are bleak because it was the end of post-war optimism in the United States. We had a good run from about 1945 till about maybe 1970. There really was this feeling of optimism in America. Things are working. We're moving forward. Every year is going to be better than the last year. And when we kind of hit the 70s, things started to break down. We kind of had that whirlwind attack of Vietnam coming home to roost, uh, race riots in the country, the assassinations piling up one after the other. Oil embargo. The oil embargo. The fact that you had something called stagflation. The idea that the economy could stagnate at the very same time you had inflation, that's not supposed to happen. You either have stagnation or inflation, but that all happened at once and people beating the crap out of each other in gas lines. At the very same time, there was also a feeling that we're running out of planet. We are starting to pollute this planet. We didn't think about pollution before, but the 70s was the first time we realized our rivers aren't safe to drink, our air is not safe to breathe, our food is no longer safe to eat. Uh, it's not particularly a horror movie, but there was a wonderful movie called Oh God, where he says, he looks at the cereal box and he says, you're turning your kids into garbage cans. So you see these apocalyptic fears come out through cinema because it's a great way of looking at it and not being so scared that you run away because that's the ego defense mechanism. If you watch a documentary, if it's too real, if it's on the news, uh, your brain can shut down in the same way that your nerves at the tip of your fingers tell you don't touch a fire. If you have too much truth too fast, it's too painful. But you put it in an apocalyptic setting, it gives you a bit of a sheath to protect yourself enough to absorb it slowly over time. And one other slightly different facet of this is uh, I was talking to Joe Dante a couple of weeks ago. He basically suggested that, you know, well, you know, these big apocalypse movies are also kind of like what the disaster movies of the 70s were, just with bigger stakes. Well, bigger stakes, uh, not as much not as much all-star casts. Disaster movies are localized, right? There's only one towering inferno. There's only one airport. There's only one uh, earthquake in one city. So it's a localized disaster. It happens to be a city where everyone who was famous in the 50s happens to live. So 
you get a bunch of stars who are, you know, a little bit past their prime, but they still got talent and they're great to watch. And that was Erwin Allen and he was a genius. And he made how many of them? I don't know how many, but he certainly made, you know, you got your earthquake, you got your swarm. The swarm, yeah. Towering Inferno, there was, Poseidon Adventure. Those are the ones that leap to. The there was front. a volcano, wasn't there? There's probably a volcano. There was probably a volcano somewhere in there. That was when we also discovered there were things called tidal waves. There was a feeling in the 70s that nature is fighting back. And there's a lot of those great nature fighting back movies. There was that great one, Frogs, Food of the Gods. That was another great one. There's this notion of everything that we've been pumping into Mother Earth since the 40s is starting to come back. And where are we now? So we've sort of beat the shit out of nature, but now nature is sort of counterpunching with a total extinction move, maybe. This is the problem is in the West, we had the reckoning of what we're of, of economics versus nature in the 1970s. And, you know, we go back and forth about it. Sometimes we retreat, sometimes we advance, but it is an open and honest debate in the United States, in Europe, even in Japan. Japan made the movie Godzilla versus the Smog Monster which was a reckoning on pollution. You could not have made that kind of a movie in China because that would imply that the government is not perfect. This is why disaster films, environmental disaster films cannot be made in China because it will assume that the government is not minding the store. If you have the Chinese Communist Party that is all powerful, that is responsible for everything, therefore they bear the responsibility for everything as well. When we look back on this pandemic, the truly only innocent people are the Chinese people because they didn't have a vote. We did. We voted for a guy who didn't believe in, I don't know, anything but himself. But we did that. But they didn't. The Chinese are passengers. So they get to complain. We don't. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, either version. Well, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, both movies are awesome. Both movies are about your neighbors turning on each other. That's, I think, one of the, the great themes in all horror films. doesn't matter what you're doing. Is when Homo sapiens come together, we can master the planet. Nobody can stand against us. We've seen that. When we tear ourselves apart, we are victims of anything. And that was Invasion of the Body Snatchers, when your neighbors start to turn, which given the way the country is now, I think it's time for another, another version. But both are great. I grew up in the 70s version where Donald Sutherland, is there anything he can't do? He's done a lot of stuff. I mean, he's, Donald Sutherland is funny. He plays a great hero. He also plays a scary as hell villain. In Invasion of the Body Snatchers, he plays both. He's pretty magnificent. Three, have you seen Don't Look Now lately? Or Oh, no, I yeah. want to see that. Yeah, he's so good in that. So that's like one of his best roles. That's a brilliant movie. It's it's a hard one if you have well, kids. So, yeah. yeah. But I mean, I mean, this is, the, well, I mean, as we know, this is the problem with this country is with actors. Actors don't get less talented. We just throw them away. You know, we, we, we love them for a few minutes 
and we put them in everything, which is why actors have to do everything because you're, they feel the ticking clock because eventually the clock's going to stop ticking. They're going to say, we don't, we don't like you anymore. But wait a minute, I'm not less talented. And they go, no, 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 you, you can go away. I, although I was checking his IMDb and he's just like, no, he's, he's always out there. He's still doing it. Well, he's, he got lucky in that he never became the biggest name. Because that's the worst thing that could ever happen to you in this country is to become a movie star, not an actor. If you're an actor, you can work forever. But if you become a movie star, the biggest people get sick of you and they want to move you away. And it's tough, really tough for men. And it's really tough for women. Because you got that, you got that early stage of your career where you're hot and sexy and you get cast in those roles. And then there's the later stage where you're like the district attorney or the mom. And then there's like nothing in between. Nobody's writing roles for you. Nobody's thinking of you of anything but an object. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. Uh, my wife and I, we just watched the first episode of Hill Street Blues. You know, I don't know. We subscribe to the defense of I grew up in a different time. But wow, that was a different time. In the pilot, there is a scene where these two cops go to an apartment where the woman, the older woman, is about to stab her husband because he keeps having sex with his underage stepdaughter. And the cops break it up and they say, listen, listen, hey, everyone's to blame here. Seriously? Yes. Says, now, you, stepdad, stop having sex with your underage stepdaughter. But you, underage stepdaughter, when you're getting changed, close the door so you're not, you know, teasing him. That's sort of implied. And you, wife, you better pay more attention to your man. And I think it's something like, she's like, I work all day. And he's like, I work all day too. Uh, but it's basically, that's the premise. Is like, everyone here has, shares equal blame. I, I think that qualifies as a very different time. You have to make social change. You know, watching, my son watched the original King Kong recently. And he knew that he was getting into an incredibly racist movie. Obviously, it's an island full of black people worshiping a giant gorilla who only wants a white woman uh, who's then brought to America in chains. I mean, the, the, the racism is off the charts. What I didn't realize, because I hadn't seen it in a long time, it's also an incredibly sexist movie, too, because basically the premise is women are trouble. And every character says it in some way or another. They're like, ah, dames, women, this is no place for a girl, women, whatever. I think the first time that Jack Driscoll meets Andero, he accidentally like punches her in the face and he goes, ah, I'm sorry. Instead of like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. He's like, ah, but, but the premise is that you shouldn't be on the boat anyway. We have a long way to go in this country for social justice, but we have come a long way too. Did you see 10 Cloverfield Lane? I didn't, you know, I've always wanted to see that one. Very different from the Cloverfield movie. Very, yeah. Which is, oh my God, there's a giant monster and I've got to go back and save the woman that I talked to for 10 minutes. I barely met her. You know, I always wanted the, the movie to end a little differently where they, he saves her and they get away and oh, we got away and she says, just, just one thing, we didn't have a chance to talk about the party. Um, I don't like Jews. Just really don't like Jews. I just thought it'd be, you know, it'd be an interesting ending. Like, oh, wow. Glad I went through all that. That was Max Brooks. 
Join us next time for Lex Scott Davis. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast hosted by Eli Roth and Kurt Zayenga. Produced by Kurt Zayenga. Engineered by Chris Heckman. With music by Joseph Bashara. For Oddity, Jessica Bastilos and Lacey Oglevoy. For Shudder, Craig Engler, Nicholas Lazo, and Samuel Zimmerman. The interviews in this program were originally conducted for the third season of the AMC television series Eli Roth's History of Horror. Executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sayanga, Stephen Michaels, Allison Berkeley, Joseph Freed, Jody Flynn, and James McNabb. Senior producer Ben Raphael Schur. Thanks to Marco Brazes, Kelly Nash, Chris Powers, and Clara Zwerbel at AMC. This is Kurt Sayanga for Eli Roth's History of Horror Uncut.